Psalm 34 is an invitation. You come this morning being invited. Psalm 34 is an invitation to find your life and your joy in God. For God himself is the fount of eternal life and everlasting joy. Therefore, this is not an invitation of deceit. The psalmist is not calling you to come find your joy in God and you will go and pursue and arrive in response to that invitation and it'd be something other than you imagined. Knowing God shall be greater than you imagined. This is a kind of invitation that in coming to know and find our life and joy in God that is from our perspective something we grow in greater awareness of and age upon, age in the new creation, we will find God ever greater than and more delightful than than we can possibly conceive at this point. In his book, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis has words relevant here. He's talking in this part of his book on the Psalms about enjoying and praising God. And the writer is inviting us in Psalm 34 to praise God. So hear the words about Lewis, from Lewis. The most obvious fact about praise had strangely escaped me. I thought of it merely in terms of compliment or approval. I had not noticed that all enjoyment... All enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes our enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. The Scotch Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Lewis says we shall then know these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify Him, God's inviting us to enjoy Him. Now think about the words of Lewis in Psalm 34. We're being invited to come and praise the Lord. And in doing so, to find God to be our everlasting fount and joy. That we would, in praising God, express in our joy in this praise what it is to know and glorify Him. In commanding us to glorify Him, Lewis says, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. In Psalm 34, your invitation and mine is this, for us to embrace what we were made for. Come enjoy God, David says. Come delight in Him and glorify Him. This world is filled with the lies and deceptions of sin, fountains that will not satisfy. So here's David. He says, come to God. Come to God and taste and see. Come see and behold. Now I want you to know a couple things about this psalm that will help us in the interpreting of it. About the design of the psalm and about the superscription of the psalm. When David writes this invitation, he writes this invitation 22 verses long. And what's not clear in our English, that's clear in the original language, is that each of the verses are one by one in order, playing upon the Hebrew alphabet, which had 22 letters. So this is a very carefully designed psalm. We would call this the literary device of an acrostic. But in addition to the design, notice it doesn't just tell us it's a psalm of David. You're given a little historical note. Above verse 1 in the superscription, of David it says... When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. How does that setting help us in interpreting Psalm 34? He's referring here to this little historical note, this superscription, 
to an episode in David's life in 1 Samuel 21. In 1 Samuel 21, David is not yet king. In 1 Samuel 21, Saul hates David and wants to kill him. A few chapters earlier, David had been set apart by Samuel to be the future king who would succeed Saul. In 1 Samuel 17, David has slain Goliath, the mighty warrior of Gath. With Goliath's own sword, David chopped his head off. And in 1 Samuel 21, David has been fleeing from Saul. And notice what we read in 1 Samuel 21.10. David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, of all places. Because just some chapters earlier, he had slain one of their greatest warriors, the champion Goliath, who'd said, listen, I don't even need to have any other Philistines, just me, any of you Israelites come against me. And then the boldness and courage of David in that story. David is fleeing Saul, and apparently David thinks being in Gath is a safer place to be than in Jerusalem with Saul. And the servants of Achish, the king of Gath, said, isn't this David, the king of the land? They, don't they sing to one another of him in dances that Saul has struck down thousands and David his tens of thousands? David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. David realizes after coming to Gath, he's not going to be safe there very long. And so, in verse 13, he changed his behavior. He pretended to be insane, the passage tells us. He he pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let spittle run down his beard. And then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack mad men? It's probably not a, that's not a compliment to his administration. Do I lack mad men that you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? So David departs safely from the king of Gath. The Lord delivered him out of those troubles He had been facing not only trials from Saul, but also in Gath where he had fled. And the Lord rescued him from them all. And so we have Psalm 34. In verses 1 to 3, David's invitation. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. David has much to praise the Lord for. David has been delivered by the power of God. And he says, not only am I going to praise God. And not only is his praise going to fill my lips at all times. And not only will it continually be in my mouth. I want you to join me. In verse 3 he says, join me in committing your life to the praise of God being continually upon your lips He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. And we know that all times are encompassing of both times of plenty and times of want. Times of goodness and times of hardship. Times of comfort and times of discomfort. All times, David says, here's what I know. No matter what is happening around me, there's an unchanging reality. And the unchanging reality is the worthiness of God and the trustworthiness of God. I will bless the Lord. I will bless the Lord and at all times do so. His praise will be in my mouth. And this is coming, he says in verse 2, from my depths. In verse 2, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. David, from a worldly perspective, might have had much to boast at outwardly. 
He'd been set apart by Samuel to be the coming king. And later in David's life, he would receive the allegiance of many people socially and politically. And David's boast cannot be in those things associated with himself. Those things that the world might find impressive, but in the end, they're not going to deliver him from sin and death. So he says, my soul boasts outside of myself, away from me, and in God. My soul, my heart, all that I am within me is boasting in God. Let the humble hear and be glad. Those who would find themselves in humble conditions are probably what verse 2 means. The humble are those that the opposite of the proud. They are certainly those with an attitude of dependence. I want to add to that. Those in humble conditions or circumstances of difficulty that would be the opposite of uh, self-exaltation and self-dependence. The humble here are those who are hearing and being glad because both their attitude and their circumstances aren't impressive to the world, but they are those who will look to the Lord. They don't look to the powerful resources of the world to sustain them and give them hope and confidence for the future. It is God. And so those who are humble in this way, those who will join David's boast, he says, magnify the Lord with me. One of my favorite illustrations from John Piper about this word magnify is that when we read the word magnify in the Bible, it's what a telescope does here, not what a microscope does. Both magnify, but Piper says it's very different in what they do. A microscope takes something small and changes the way it appears so that it looks larger and greater than it actually is. And if you look at something, let's say like the face of a spider or an ant in a microscope, it's the stuff of nightmares. Google this on your own time. Not right now, but on your own time. You can, you can find like people have done this and they have zoomed in and it looks like there's something out of a horror film. A telescope takes something that is glorious and grand and tries from our vision to make it more in our hearts and minds like it truly is. And so like a telescope, the psalmist says, magnify the Lord. We're not trying to make God great as if he's not. We're not trying to project something grand as if it's something small. We're trying to bring into perspective what is glorious and great. And that is the reality of God himself. Magnify Yahweh with me. Let us exalt his name together. And the psalmist is going to give testimony. If somebody were to say, well, David, that sounds great. I love a good invitation. And you're inviting me, Lord, to join you in praising and magnifying God. What's got you so excited, David? What are you so animated about? And in verses 4 to 7, here's his testimony. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. So when David sought the Lord, where was David? David was afraid. David knows what it is to be fearful. He knows what it is to be in peril, to be in intense suffering. You know what David needs to do? David does what he promised, what he says here in his testimony in verse 4. He seeks the Lord. Here in the past tense, he's reflecting on what he's done in light of his trouble. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And that means to seek the Lord like orienting your heart toward God intentionally. God was not lost. And David's like, but where's God? I've got to seek him. 
This is not a seeking after something lost, but a seeking in a way that directs our heart and soul unto God. And we do this through the prayer and reading of the Word of God and through the community of the people of God, where in song and praise and encouragement and the sharing of burdens, that individually and corporately we are seeking the Lord. We are directing our hearts to God. I sought the Lord and He answered me. And He delivered me from all my fears. And those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. There's this blessing in the priestly words of Numbers, tw- of Numbers chapter 6, where the priests were to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. Okay, this familiar language, the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you and lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Those who look to God are radiant because when they look unto God, His face is upon them, not turned away. The Lord does not turn away from His people. We shall not find His face turned from us. We shall find His help, His compassion and mercy, and His ever-present power and grace. I sought the Lord and He answered me. And those who look to Him are radiant. Verses 4 and 5, together, I sought the Lord. What does that look like? Looking to Him. Looking to Him. And what do I find? I find His shining countenance upon me. Those who look to Him become radiant. It might even make you think of Moses' experience because in Exodus chapter 34 and following, the presence and glory of God was such in Moses' life that the very face of Moses would reflect the glory of God with a countenance. Think of David looking at the story of Moses and the blessing of the priests and saying, well, in a sense then, even though I'm not Moses, this is true for me. And even though I'm not from the people of Israel in the Sinai covenant under the priesthood of Aaron, this is true for me in Christ. Those who look to God are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. To be ashamed would be to face the disappointment at hoping in something that was in vain. David says, that's not what we have in God, a refuge who fails. Some hope that will be in vain. There shall be no shame For those who hope in God. They shall never be ashamed. They shall look unto God. And they shall find Him as faithful as He says He is. They shall find Him as trustworthy. And wiser than. And greater than. And more delightful than they can imagine. There shall be no shame in our hope in God. Those who look to Him are radiant. David says this poor man. And I think he's talking about himself in verse 6. This poor man. Now is that because because David growing up in Bethlehem was poor? I don't think this is primarily an economic statement. Again, like in verse um, 2, the humble being uh, glad, the humble hearing and being glad, the humble and poor state is probably more than an economic statement. It's about his conditions and circumstances of hardship. He's in poor conditions. He's in humble circumstances and he cries out. What happens in verse 6? The Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. And in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers him. Verses 4 through 7 are David's testimony, and he incorporates the saving or delivering work of God, as in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamping around his people. We've thought about Moses, the shining face of Moses, the experience of Moses in the presence of God and humble before God. 
Think again of the book of Exodus now. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites are leaving Egyptian captivity. And God is leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a fire by night. And what we are told is that the angel of Yahweh surrounds them. And is between the Egyptian forces who pursue with the intent to destroy or to bring many back to enslavement. The the angel of the Lord is between those enslaving militarily strong armies of the Egyptians and the people of God. It's as if the angel of the Lord, representing the presence and power of God, encamps around those Israelites. And David says, yeah, I'm not just coming from Egyptian captivity, but what God did for them, he does for me. What God does for Moses, He does for us. God's covenant faithfulness shows up in pattern kind of language in verse 7, where the angel of the Lord is with those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, the angelic strength and power of our divine warrior who fights on behalf of His people through His armies. Armies we cannot see and help that He is faithful to provide. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. The angel of God, this angel of Yahweh figure in the book of Genesis and forward is someone who is named over 50 times in the Old Testament. There is some debate among Old Testament interpreters about how to rightly understand the angel of Yahweh. That's not the burden of our passage this morning. But it nevertheless references the power of God and the presence of God for and on behalf of his people. Here's what David says. God is with me in my trouble. He's not absent. He hasn't turned his face. In fact, those who look to him are radiant. And though the darkness of life is what it is, the angel of the Lord is upon those and around those who fear the Lord. I think this is David's way of saying, so in light of my testimony, join me in not only magnifying God, let's fear the Lord. Let's fear the Lord together. Let's magnify the Lord together. Let's look to the Lord together so that our faces and our lives will will reflect the radiance of God's countenance and experience the delivering power of His hand. In verses 8 to 14, the psalmist is going to exhort us now to fear the Lord. I think you can draw that lesson from David's own testimony. He wants you to join him in this. But now it's not just implicit. It's explicit in verses 8 to 14. He's going to exhort us to respond. He says in verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. It seems that in verse 8, taking refuge in God is what it means to taste and see. It means to respond with a looking of life and heart unto God as your help and your hope. To count to God as your refuge. Tasting and seeing, this is culinary imagery, isn't it? Have you ever tried to convince somebody to to try something and they've not tried it before and they're thinking, "Ah, I'm not sure about this. And you say, listen, because of what I know about you, I know you're going to like this. You're just going to have to trust me on this and you're going to need to taste and see. And you know, and you're waiting with anticipation. And they take this bite and they taste it and their eyes light up and you're like, I told you, I told you you would love this. What this reminds me of is uh, Chick-fil-A's honey pepper pimento chicken sandwich. Now, I don't know if you've tried this. It's a seasonal item. They're not open on Sunday, so you can't get it today. But sometime this week, you need to taste and see. And you might think of this honey, pimento, pepper, chicken sandwich, like all of that together. Are you serious? Just by faith, go and eat, okay? Just go and try it. 
Here, in a larger, grander way, the Lord is being pictured as something to to count yourself on, cast yourself on, as one trusting in like a, a person finding refuge and tasting to experience the trueness. Now, no doubt, no doubt, someone has said to you, just try this, and you've tasted in vain. Okay, you have tasted, and it was not what you expected. That is not what this is in verse 8. That is not what this is. This is something that we taste in looking by faith to God. And blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. That in finding refuge in God, God is more faithful than we realize. In fact, we may find ourselves thinking, I wish I would have trusted the Lord long ago. I wish I would have committed myself to the Lord and looked to Him and hoped in Him much earlier than I have because the Lord is indeed good. So David says, find your refuge in Him. Blessed is the man who does. Now Peter, in his letter to his readers in 1 Peter chapter 2, is going to use this Psalm chapter 34, 8. In some application to his readers, he says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He's exhorting them to Christian living, isn't he, in 1 Peter 2.1. And then he says, Long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones. Think of Peter's use of Psalm 34.8. Psalm 34.8 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. In Peter's language, Who's the Lord in 1 Peter 2? Jesus is. Jesus is. So the way we respond 2,000 years after the cross of Christ is we read, first, we read Psalm 34, 8, and we heed the exhortation this way. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We say put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Look to Him. Turn from your sin, which will not satisfy, and stop drinking of the bankrupt cisterns of the world, which will not sustain you. And look to God. Trust in His Son. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Spurgeon says, faith is the soul's taste. That's what that is. Faith is tasting of your soul of the goodness and promises of God which do not fail. So taste and see. In verse 9, he says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. Fear the Lord. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer uh, suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. In verses 9 and 10 here, as he's exhorting his people, he says, Fear the Lord for the reason that you can trust God to give and provide. You really can. And he gives this example from verse 2. Where the saints are to imagine the young lions, young lions who would be different from old lions that might depend on closer food or weaker prey, but the young lions with their growing strength and their eagerness to go after a kill, well, the young lions would not suffer want and hunger for long. So here's the surprise in verse 10. He uses, he uses here an image of young lions who seem to be very self-dependent and very self-sufficient in getting prey. And he says, they suffer want and hunger. And you think, well, that just seems unthinkable. So he's taking what seems unthinkable to compare it to this. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. 
It's his way of using ancient, well, conventional ways of thinking about uh, predators like young lions. And he's saying the young lions will find themselves in need before the people of God find God unfaithful. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And notice in here the contrast, young lions would be very self-dependent, very self-sufficient, going out with their own predatory instincts. Those who seek the Lord, that is not a self-dependent attitude. Those who seek the Lord, that's a God-dependent attitude. That's a God-dependent disposition of the heart. So he is putting aside self-sufficiency and highlighting God-dependence in verse 10, fear the Lord. What it looks like to fear the Lord is to depend upon God in our prayers and in our praise. In our dependence on Him through the promises of His Word. And in looking to good and turning from evil. Those who fear the Lord. He says, saints, let's do this. Magnify the Lord with me. Fear the Lord with me. Taste and see with me. In verse 11, He says, come, O children, listen to me. Oh, He's getting into wisdom teacher mode. That's the gear He's shifting in. And this is helpful because His son Solomon is going to write a lot of wisdom stuff. He's going to write wisdom proverbs and other books that are going to be sustained and preserved by the Spirit of God for the people of God. And David here is talking a lot like what his son Solomon would be influenced by. When we see, come listen to me, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. That sounds like what David's son is going to say in the book of Proverbs. And David's talking like that here as his father in verse 11. He says, I'll teach you the fear of the Lord. And what he begins to teach them in the rest of our little section here through verse 14, where he's exhorting us to fear God, is he's showing us that it's not just, I want to fear the Lord with some sort of desire inwardly, void of anything else. Fear of the Lord is walking wisely with God. It's a life that wants to delight in God, to taste and see that he's good, and keep in step with the wisdom of God revealed in his word. In other words, in verses 12 to 14, what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The fear of the Lord is not just something that is about your good intention or the thought that counts. In in Jesus' teachings, he says in Matthew 7, the one who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a fool who builds his house on the sand. What the psalmist seems to be talking about is the one who not only claims to fear the Lord, they live like they do. They turn from what is wicked. They pursue what is righteous. They want to walk with God. And you know what? They want to grow old with God. In verse 12, what man is there who desires life and loves many days? You might think to yourself, I want to walk with God. And not just for a season. I want to walk with God and I want to grow with God. And I want to year by year follow the Lord. I want to see many days and see good. He says, if that's what you want, then turn from evil. In verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. So may evil not be found on our lips continually. May God's praise be continually upon our lips. You see how verses 1 to 3 would be challenged by a life that is living in wickedness? Because how is it that the praise of God will be on our lips if what we've made room with for our tongue is to speak wickedness? Keep your tongue from evil. 
your lips from deceit and turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This, of course, is righteousness and goodness defined by God. Taste and see that the Lord is good and then live in the fear of God that the ways and wisdom of God would be worked out in your life. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. Live for Christ on purpose. This isn't just going to happen because you're drifting through a culture that has some knowledge in local churches about Christ or the gospel. And we're just going to kind of float around hoping to catch some things passively. We're talking here about intentionally pursuing what is right and intentionally turning from what is evil. He says, do you long for this? He's exhorting us to fear God. In the last part of his, his psalm, this beautifully designed acrostic for his readers, he wants to close in verses 15 through 22, teaching us about the righteous and the wicked. This is going to give us some incentive. We're not owed this. This is the mercy of God helping us see what the future holds for the righteous and what the future holds for the wicked. And being able to believe the Bible on this regard is so crucial so that we can in this regard see the faithfulness of God promised here toward his people and the judgment of God promised toward the righteous that we can see what's down this path. In other words, if he says turn and do, this is path language like the wisdom of the Old Testament. So why would I turn from and pursue something else? What's down these different roads? So he's going to tell you in verses 15 to 22. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Verses 15 and 16 here are contrasting God's posture toward image bearers. And we do not in our right minds want to be found as those to whom the Lord has turned against. The Lord is against those who do evil. That's why in verse 14 he says turn from evil. Turn from it because those who live for what is wicked God is against them. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. So do good, seek peace, and pursue it in verse 14. Because the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears are toward their cry. We want to be those who are depending on the Lord who look to Him as our refuge because we want to be heard in our prayers. We want to be helped by His strength. I love Spurgeon's comments about this verse. Charles Spurgeon says, God observes His people with approval and tender consideration. They are so dear to Him. That he cannot take his eyes off them. He watches each one of them as carefully and intently as if they were that only creature in the universe. Whoa. He has such intensiveness, devoted care and compassion and steadfast love for us. And is so near with his help and kindness that it says if there was nothing else in the universe but us to receive such focus. And yet God is so great. And so mighty and his mercy so vast that these words of Spurgeon are gloriously true for every one of the people of God. His eyes are toward us and his ears toward us. And this is what we want. But not so for those who do evil. His face is against them. Those who look to him are radiant because his countenance is upon them. But his face is against the evildoer. 
To cut off the memory of them for the earth. Oh, see, they might have thought that in their cleverness and in their strategies of wickedness, they're going to make a name for themselves. The history books will not praise the wicked. They will despise the evildoers. Those who brought calamity and chaos into the world of God's image bearers. It is, it is the wiping away of their memory ultimately and judgment that seems to be in view here in verse 16. Peter quotes from these parts of Psalm 34 also. When he's exhorting his readers in 1 Peter 3, he quoted in 1 Peter 2 from the taste and see verse, verse 8. And now in 1 Peter 3, the next chapter, he quotes from Psalm 34, 12 to 16. And he explains this, applying this to his readers. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. And he, get, he explains by saying, for, in verse 34, 12, what man is there who desires to walk wisely or to live long with the Lord? Then he should do this and not this. He should turn from this and pursue this. Peter looks at Psalm 34 and he sees relevant words for your Christian lives. He reads Psalm 34 and he says, we need to taste and see that the Lord is good. That's the Lord Jesus. And then we need to follow the Lord Jesus because he himself is the wisdom of God and the righteousness of God. We need to repent of our sin and we need to find our refuge in him. In verse 17 of our passage this morning, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. That's because his eyes are toward the righteous and his ears are toward them. So when you cry for help, the Lord hears. Have you ever called for someone but they're not in your direction of hearing. And you're like, well, that's why they can't hear me. You know, they're around this corner or they're over in this or I'm going yelling maybe this way and they're behind me. No wonder my voice couldn't match. Behold how, the, how it matches here. The Lord's ears are toward the righteous. The righteous turn toward the Lord and they cry out to him and he hears them. He hears them. The Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles in verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. You know, one of the lies of the evil one is be, will be this. It will sound like this. Because of what I'm going through, the Lord must have rejected me. Because of what I'm having to endure, the Lord must hate me. And in verse 18, we read instead, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. Spurgeon says, broken hearts think God far away when He is really most near to them. Oh, it is a, a lie from hell that the God of heaven and earth is distant from His brokenhearted people. He is nearer to them than they realize. Near to the brokenhearted saves the crushed in spirit. In verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. And you say, well, indeed, David experienced the deliverances from the Lord. But David still died. David still experienced hardships. And yet he is buried in the grave. And yes, it has been the case in the generations that followed and preceded that those who are righteous find themselves in the end, not delivered from death. And I want to add yet to this point. Because when we read that the Lord delivers them out of them all, and we say, yes, but there is still suffering and death that overcomes. Friend, there is a doctrine of resurrection from the dead. This verse will be shown true. In our own lives, the Lord spares us and is so merciful toward us and does not deal with us according to all that our sins deserve. What a gracious and God of great long suffering we have. 
And He shall raise us from the grave. A trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ shall rise victorious and glorious. And we will say on that day, indeed, how He has delivered us from all our troubles. All our needs and afflictions, God has brought rescue. In verse 20, He keeps all His bones, not one of them is broken. It's the image of uh, handling something with great care. And not, uh, not breaking what could easily be broken. We think about this with packages sometimes. If you think, listen, I've ordered something from Amazon, uh, really valuable and, and, uh, and really brittle, and so it's going to come with maybe this, this uh, handle with care language on tape or on the box, right? Handle with care. Because if something that is easily broken is treated without care, then it may seem to show a recklessness. And in our future hope of resurrection from the dead... In our deliverance, even now that we taste in this life in a fallen world by the power and grace of God, God is bringing us through through a resurrection of the dead where, where our future glorious state will show unscathed, everlasting bodily life. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Imagine uh, the, the thorough rescue of the Hebrews in the fiery furnace. Where they are a foretaste of the coming deliverance. They left the furnace without the smell of smoke on them. Or Daniel in the lion's den. Where not a bone of Daniel's was broken. And he was delivered from the mouth of the lions. This uh, language of David. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Is a way of saying. Even though David will face troubles. God knows how to handle his people with care. God knows how to deal with the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. God knows in His nearness and saving grace how to help us. He is not ignorant and He is not removed. He is near and He is mighty. So let us look to Him. In fact, this language may be an allusion to Exodus 12, where the Passover lamb is in view. In Exodus 12, 46, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside and you shall not break any of its bones. That David is portraying himself as something being offered unto God. A lamb in Exodus 12. But David his own life here in Psalm 34. Unto God a life committed. That the praise of God would be upon his lips. And that he would turn from evil and do good. And that God would show the kind of loving care he's promised for all his people. This is also a psalm along with uh, Exodus 12 in the background. That John alludes to in the Gospels. Jesus is on the cross, and we're told in John chapter, um, in John chapter, uh, I just looked away from my verse. Oh, in John chapter 19, that Jesus is on the cross, and his bones are going to be unbroken. His bones seeming to be reminiscent of this Passover lamb language, and ultimately a pattern fulfilled by Jesus himself, David's greater son, committing his life unto God, a hope. Of resurrection from the dead. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them was broken. Spurgeon says of this verse. No substantial injury occurs to the saints. I want you to hear him. He says eternity. Will heal all of their wounds. Just think about this. Because we don't go through life unwounded. He says eternity will heal all their wounds. Their real self Spurgeon says is safe. They may have flesh wounds. 
But no fabric of their essential being shall be broken, and we shall be raised from the dead. What, what the psalmist seems to be doing here is not only telling you in verses 1 to 3 his praise and the invitation, or in verses 4 to 7 his testimony, and in verses 8 to 14 him saying, join me in fearing God, join me with it, but in verses 15 to 22, giving us the incentive for what is in the future of the righteous and the wicked. Why would we want to live the way David's inviting us to live? Why would we want to magnify God and trust God and taste and see that He's good? In verse 21 of our psalm, and in verse 22 of our psalm, these closing two verses contrast. Affliction will slay the wicked. And those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. So here's what you can count on. That if you live against the Lord, the Lord's face is against you. And you and your wickedness shall be brought down. You are not clever enough or strong enough to live against the God of heaven and earth and make it through. You will not. Your wickedness will be your undoing. You will reap what you sow. Those who hate the people of God will face the judgment of God. So do not live against God and His people. Instead, submit to God and love His people. Because in verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of His servants. And you do not have to wonder if some future coming day, the the Lord will withdraw His love from you and in the end decide you should be condemned. In verse 22, we're told none of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. You can trust in the promise of God that the life He has for you in His Son is eternal life. You will not perish. You shall be raised. And you shall dwell with God. And what you taste now, you shall know with ever-increasing delight and glory in His everlasting presence. You find then your refuge in Him now. Look to Him. Trust in Him. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. This bread that your forefathers ate was manna that came and went and they got hungry again. But I want you to to eat of this. I want you to believe in this. I want you to taste of this. I am the bread of life. The one who eats of me, the one who tastes in this way, shall never hunger again shall never hunger again. Because in tasting like this, we have Christ, our everlasting life. Let's pray.